Um, you know, one of the most important things in our body is our heartbeat. Uh, the heartbeat is something that every time you go to the doctor, they typically check it out. You don't go through uh, an appointment with them not checking your heartbeat out. So, tough question, but to begin with, I'd like you to turn to the person beside you, and uh, if there's not a person beside you, in front of you, and to go ahead and answer this question why is your heartbeat so important? Okay? So turn to the person beside you. Why is your heartbeat so important? Well, let me give you the reason why. I am married to a medical professional, I'll let you know. And I talked to her today, and she said the reason why... Uh, the heartbeat is so important is because the heart beats and pumps blood to the rest of your body. And if that doesn't happen, guess what happens? You die! Exactly! You die, you're done. Well, in the jar and in every other church that I know of, volunteers are the heartbeat of the church. If we don't have volunteers... Things just don't happen. And so we want to get better at knowing how to care for and train our volunteers. So if you would, when you walked in today in your program, you should have received a card uh, that looked like this. And it will come up on the side screen too. And uh, if you would, pull that out. Hold it up here for a second. If you did not get one of these, just raise your hand. And uh, one of our greeters will, will get that for you. Just raise your hand. One of them will get that uh, for you. But what we want you to do is that if you have ever volunteered on Sunday morning, whether you're currently volunteering or you um, have volunteered in the past, we want to hear from you, and we want to hear from you uh, in this way. So just circle the area that you volunteered in, and then there are two questions on the front and uh, two on the back. So, for example, let's say you're on the audiovisual team. You would circle that, and then it says, what was right about your volunteer experience? And you'd say, you know what, I really had fun, and uh, the guys that worked with me, we really uh, enjoyed this. Now, the second one is, what was wrong about your volunteer experience? Well, I never knew what Sunday I was supposed to do it because no one let me know. You could write that down. Then, uh, if you flip back on the back, what was missing from your volunteer experience? Um, well, the first time that I came, no one told me where to report to. And so I just kind of hung out back in the back for a while. And then the last one was, what was confusing about your volunteer experience? Uh, I was never trained how to mute Chris's mic. So take a... <laughs> the first celebration, they muted it. So uh, so what we want you to do and is to take three minutes to fill this out. And if you're here and you're like, this doesn't apply to me at all, then just think you're going to have three less minutes of having to listen to me on the backside because I cut three minutes out, okay? So let's go ahead and we'll take uh, three minutes. We'll listen to some mood music while we do that.
continue to fill out that card. That's not a problem. But when you're done, if you just put it underneath your chair, uh, we'll have some volunteers that will pick it up. But feel free to complete it. Um, And why don't we just uh, begin with a word of prayer before we jump in. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you so much for choosing to have a relationship with us. We are so grateful that you love us and you forgive us and you never walk away from us. God, thank you for every single person who uh, filled out this card. They've uh, served you in some way, God, and we want to get better on knowing how to train them, to care for them. And we ask, God, that you would be with the leadership of the JAR to know how to take these results and become more effective in how we do that. God, we invite your Holy Spirit now to uh, come into this place. Speak to us and help us learn how to live out an authentic faith. So come now, Holy Spirit. Speak the word that you want to speak to each person here. Whether it's a word of encouragement or challenge or conviction, God, would you come and would you speak to them so that your name would be made great? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Titanic. Every time that it's on television, I like to watch it. I bet I've watched it 15 times before. And each time that I watch it, my wife is not quite the fan that I am. And she will walk in and she will say, well, why are you watching that again? And I say, because I like the movie. And she says, it always ends the same way. The boat sinks. But I love that movie. And this week I found a phrase that I'd never heard before regarding the Titanic. And this is the phrase. It's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Now, when I thought about that, at first, I'm not a very smart man, and it took me a while, like, what in the world does that mean? What, what's it referring to? Well, I want to show you a picture from the movie of some of the deck chairs uh, that were on the Titanic there, and that's pretty close to what they uh, looked like. And so what this phrase is saying is that there's some real wisdom attached to it. And it's this. It's saying that it's useless to worry about the deck chairs on the Titanic because maybe you want to switch them around so you get a little bit more sun or you want to get next to somebody that uh, you want to get to know a little bit better. That it's useless and it's short-sighted To worry about arranging the deck chairs when you've got an iceberg ahead. Now, let me ask you, what happens if you do not pay attention to the iceberg ahead and you're more focused on rearranging the deck chairs? Well, let's see a picture. This is what happens. It hits... And then it sinks. So the moral of the story is, don't worry about rearranging the deck chairs until you've addressed the iceberg that's ahead of us. Do you know what your iceberg is? Do you know what the iceberg is of every single human being in this world? It's death. The Bible teaches very plainly and very clearly that there is an iceberg that's ahead of us and no one avoids it. I looked statistically. The mortality rate today is still the same that it was 2,000 years ago. It's hovering at 100%. We all die. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says this, 
People are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. Folks, all of us are going to hit that iceberg that is ahead of us, but that's not what the big deal is. What the big deal is, once we hit it, this passage teaches us that we are going to face a judgment. After we hit the iceberg of death, there will be judgment. You... And I and every single human being in this world will have to stand before a holy God and we'll have to give an account of how we lived our lives. The only thing is, is this is not an A, B, C, D, F kind of grading system. You either pass or you fail. Now, if you pass... You gain eternal life in the presence of God and you live with Him forever. But if you fail, you have eternal death and you're absent from God forever. Anybody think that's a big deal? Maybe. Now I know some of you are thinking right now, Chris, Chris, no problem. I got this covered. Or you might say, Jesus has it covered for me. And you might look through your Bible and you'd pick out a passage of Scripture. The one that in just a few weeks will be uh, in end zones at NFL games, right? John 3.16. Let's go ahead and let's read this out loud together. Let's read out loud. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. You're saying, Chris, Jesus has this covered for me. I have come to believe in Him as the Lord of my life. I've trusted in Him. Everything is cool with me. Well, I don't want to burst your bubble this morning, but I'll let James burst your bubble. The passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today in James chapter 2 creates a little tension when it comes to this idea that we receive salvation by faith alone, or that we're made right with God by our faith alone. If you would, we're going to look at verses 14 to 17. And I just want to give you a heads up. This is a part of Scripture that most of the time we just pass by. In fact, most pastors don't want to touch this because it's a little controversial. But we're in James, so... I'm stuck with it, so I'm going to do the best I can, okay? So here we go. Verse 14, James says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith but have no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs... What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, I want you to move down. We'll look at verse 24. It's real clear. This is what it says. You see that people are justified. That word justified is just a big theological word that means people are made right with God. That they receive God's approval. So you see that people are made right with God. They receive His approval by what they do and not by faith alone. Now I think this clears this up. Let's pray and we'll go home. Okay? That's really what I was thinking when I looked at this text this week. You see, folks, we've got a contradiction here with the Scripture. John is saying one thing, faith alone. James is saying not faith alone. So when we encounter a contradiction like this, what do we do? Well, there are some options. Here's the first option. I told you, you could say this. You could say, I told you the Scriptures contradict each other. They cannot be trusted in matters of life, so I'm going to abandon them. Exit, stage left. I'm done. Option number two. 
you can say, I better get to work. I mean, some of you have been resting a little bit too long. You need to start getting to work. You need to work harder. You got to get a whole bunch of good works done before you hit the iceberg, and time is short, so you better start now. Option number three. You could say, I'll just rest on my faith laurels, hoping that James is wrong. <laughs> Isn't that good? Ah, I'm just going to hope that it's good, this guy's wrong. You know? Or option number four is, I'll dig deeper to see if I'm really understanding what James is saying. Now, I'm going to opt for option number four. You want to join me? Some of you aren't so sure. Some of you are like, I already picked option one, two, and three, man. All right, well, we're going to go option four, okay? Now, let's go back to uh, James uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 14. He says this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith but have no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Now, the key word in this verse is the word claim. So you might want to take your pen, uh, circle that word claim uh, in your verse. This is the key word in this verse because here what it's saying is that a person claiming by his or her own mouth, out of their mouth they claim that they have faith, but it doesn't show in their life. That a person who lives like that is not a person of genuine faith. But in reality, they have a bogus faith. A little term from the 80s, some of you might remember. I mean, the person here is claiming that intellectually they know God. They say, I know God. I believe in God. I believe in that God that's out there. I believe that Jesus Christ is The Lord, He is the Son of God. I believe that He died on the cross for the sins of the world. But the real question is the one that James is asking is, can such faith save them? Can such a faith make them whole, make them complete, get them to heaven? You know, I run into people all the time, and once I put down the pastor card and I go, they ask, well, what's your job? And I go, well, I'm a pastor. I go, oh, I believe in God. I believe in God. I haven't been going to church, but I believe in God. And I believe in Jesus Christ. Oh, I believe He is the Son of God. I believe that. And I run into people like that all the time. Now, they believe intellectually. They have their minds in the right place. They believe in their hearts. That they have done everything they need to be connected to God. But James is saying that that kind of faith alone does not amount to conversion. Now, we're going to look at a chart today called a faith chart. It's by Warren Wizerby, and uh, it's from his commentary. A commentary is just simply a biblical scholar who knows a lot more than I do, so I go to learn from them. And then they actually uh, create something, and they comment on a a particular scripture. And he comments on the book of James. And he says the first thing that James is saying in this is that in their faith chart, the first kind of person is a person who has a dead faith. It's intellectual alone. It's only in the mind. And so as James is writing, he says one type of person is a person who has a dead faith. It's intellect alone. You can check a mark there for intellect if you want. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but that's what James says. But you know what? Actually, Jesus said this as well. There's a passage of Scripture in Matthew in which Jesus said this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Folks, not everyone who simply from their mouth says Jesus is Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't get mad at me. I don't, I don't need emails this week. Get mad at Jesus. Because He said it. And I think what's happening here is that James is picking up on the teaching of his half-brother Jesus. Remember, we said that James was Jesus' half-brother. 
I mean, just because a person claims to have faith, has an intellectual faith, this kind of faith is not a genuine faith that brings about conversion. But rather, it is a bogus faith, James would say. Now, I'd like you to turn to the person beside you, and we're going to try to answer a question. Just a guess, but here's the question. Uh, Here's the question. There's not a... Oh, there it is. Okay. The question is, what percentage of Americans do you think believe in God? Okay? So turn to the person beside you. What percentage of Americans do you think believe in God? Okay, the, uh, Gallup did a recent poll, and the answer from the Gallup poll is 91%. 91% of all Americans, isn't that amazing? They believe in God. Now, here's the second question that we want to look at. Very good PowerPoint, guys. Uh, couldn't do it without you. Uh, what percentage of, Mer- of Americans do you think believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Okay, so go ahead. Well, the answer is 78%. 78%. Now, this shows evidence, right, that we are a Christian nation. That regardless of what the media says or what, uh, you know, fundamentalists say, um, people still believe in Christ. They still believe there is a God. Well, I just want to follow this up with another question, and it's this. What percentage of demons do you think believe in God? A hundred percent. Right? Now, this is James' point. Look at verses 18 and 19. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Now, then here he goes. Here it is. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. And what? They shudder. Demons are not agnostic. Demons are not atheists. Demons believe in God. And yet the kind of belief that demons have, which is intellectual and also shuddering, is an emotion, does not get them redemption, doesn't get them into heaven. You don't have little demons going around going, I believe in God. You think you're bad over here, but I believe. (laughs) Jesus says that demons actually take their faith a step above. Demons actually take it a step above a people who have a dead faith where it's only intellectual alone. Now, shuddering, as I said earlier, is an emotion. In other words, demons not only believe that there's a God, they not only believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but whenever they think of God, what happens? They shudder. It's an emotion. Because they know that God is real and that God is powerful and that God is true. And yet, shuddering in and of itself when you add it to the intellectual knowledge of God, is still not enough to bring about conversion. We don't have a lot of demons getting converted to Jesus. Like, none. It's simply a demonic faith. So we've got to go back to our faith chart again. The first type of faith is a dead faith, which is intellectual only. And then the second kind of faith is a demonic faith that has both intellect and emotion. Now, neither one of these kinds of faith are ones that James is going to allude to as he talks in the rest of the Scripture. But in order to understand this, I need you guys to be really focused. We turn the air down just so that you'd be a little cooler so you won't fall asleep, okay? So verses 20 to 24, let's look at this. And what you need to understand going into this, he gives an example of a guy by the name of Abraham. And why do you think he would choose Abraham? 
Because Abraham was the father of the Jews. And if you remember from week one, we said that James is writing to former Jewish Christians who are being persecuted. So they all know about Abraham. There's oral stories that have been told. He is the kingpin of the Jewish faith. Verse 20. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that people who are justified, in other words, made right with God, they get his approval, by what they do and not by faith alone. Now again, the reason why he chooses Abraham is because Abraham is the top dog. Everybody would believe what Abraham had to say. They admired Abraham. They revered him. Abraham's story had huge influence, and James wanted to influence his writers. Now in verse 21, he actually cites an example of a story that took place in Genesis chapter 22. You don't You can look at it now if you want, but just write it down. Genesis 22. So he's referring back to the very first book of the Bible, which is Genesis. And in chapter 22, there is a story about Abraham and his wife Sarah. And they've been wanting to have a child for their entire life. And God comes and says, I'm going to give you a child. But he doesn't tell them when. And it takes ten years between the point that he gives the promise and the point that he actually uh, comes through on that. And Isaac grows up to be 13, 14 years old, a few pimples, you know, that kind of thing. And then one day, God comes to Abraham and tells him, I want you to take your one and only son, the gift that I gave to you, that you've waited on for all of these years, and I want you to take him away from the home on a three-day journey to a place called Mount Moriah, and I want you to take him to the top of that where you sacrifice animals, and I want you to sacrifice your one and only son in obedience to me. And some of you are thinking right now, that's really in the Bible? Yeah. Well, that's the story. It's not a story we like to talk about. Again, I told you, this is not a passage of Scripture. We usually go on by that. We go, oh, Jesus. Jesus loves squirrels and pearls and all kinds of stuff, you know? No, no, no. God actually said, kill your only son. Incredible act of obedience that Abraham committed to. James is saying that because of Abraham's work in doing what God asked, he was justified. In other words, he is set right with God. He gets God's approval because of this act that he's willing to do. So it appears then that we have to add works in our faith in order to be made right with God and eternal life in the presence of God forever. But that's not what it says. Let's look more carefully. Verse 22. You see that his faith and his actions, that is Abraham, were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. So James is saying, no, 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 it's not just faith alone, but it is faith and works. Now, when you're reading this for the very first time, you're going, wow, this is a contradiction. And you read it, many of you, when you have read it, you're probably saying, you know what? Uh, This happened at the exact same time. Like, he came to God, and then God told him to get... No, no, no. There's a long period of time. This is two different incidents that are going on. These are two different stories, two different moments in his life. And the faith actually came before this work. The faith came before the works. Now look at verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, he's made right with God. He gets God's approval. Now this long phrase, credited to him in righteousness. What the heck does that mean? You know? Is this the actual conversion? It was the moment that Abraham finally realized that all of his debt 
All of his flub-ups, all of his mess-ups, all of his screw-ups, all of his stuff in his life. Someone's calling me right now, sorry. Why would you call a pastor on... Okay, we'll just leave that there for right now. That's the second time in nine years that has happened. Okay, I have no idea where I'm at. Anyways... So credited him with righteousness. So he takes him and what that word means is that it's at that point that all of his flub-ups, all of his mess-ups, all of his screw-ups in his life, he realizes once and for all, it is canceled. It is ended. It is no longer there. And he was credited with, he was given righteousness. Now, we would assume then that all of this happened in Genesis 22, right before he has this act of obedience. But that's not the case. It takes place earlier in Genesis 15. And I want us to look at that because you'll see then in verse 6 where he gets this quote from. Verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord, Genesis chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now this was a difficult time for Abraham. He's waited his entire life to have a child. And Sarah's had a hard time too. They've seen their friends become parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and they still have not had any children. And they've waited and they've waited and they've waited. And finally, at the age of 90 for Sarah and at the age of 100 for Abraham, they have a child. Now, I didn't think that was like almost like virtually impossible. I mean, how can that happen? I mean, who even wants children at the age of 90, right? Like, no. I don't want them. I mean, just think about it. Those of you who are women who have had birth, you've gone through pregnancy, you know how difficult it was for you. Now think you're 90. Let's pop one out, you know? I remember my wife and I, we were reading this text one time, and she actually said, that is not like a heavenly thought, that is a hell thought. You know what I mean? But God says to Abram, Not only will you have a son, but your descendants will be as great as the stars in the heaven and like the sands of the seashore. And it says in verse 6 this, And Abram believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Where did we hear that? James just said. The faith conversion of Abraham to be declared right with God took place in Genesis 15 on the basis of what? Faith alone. It was not his works that caused his relationship with God to be made right. It was faith alone. So why in the world would Abraham, or why in the world would James pick Abraham and talk about Genesis 22? Why didn't he just stay with 15 if it was faith alone? Why does he do this? Well, you've got to realize that 24 years have taken place from Genesis 15 to Genesis 22. And Abraham is declared righteous at the first time, but he is given this act of obedience of killing his son. Now listen to me carefully. The outward act of obedience was simply an inward act of faith. It was not his obedience that saved Abraham. It was his faith. In God. This outward act simply confirmed what he had 
believed inwardly. Abraham believed in God as his shield and his great reward. That even then, at a difficult moment, when God asked him to sacrifice his one and only son, that he still believed that somehow God would come through. God, you promised me a son. You delivered me a son. Now I'm going to kill my son, and yet somehow, some way, I believe, God, that you will still come through. And we get to Genesis 22, and Abraham has the knife up. And the Scripture says that he, he is bringing the knife down upon his son. When all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord comes and says, Stop! What are you doing? Don't do that! And the angel said this, Now I know that God is what? First in your life. This outward act of obedience demonstrated a faith that Abraham had committed to 24 years earlier. It's genuine. Our conversion takes place by faith alone. That's the way it worked with Abraham. That's the way that it's worked with everybody since Abraham. It is through our faith. Our relationship with God. Made right by grace through faith. However, our good works are an authentication. In other words, it confirms our faith. And when that happens, it's not a dead faith. It's not a demonic faith. But it's a third kind of faith called a dynamic faith. And a dynamic faith is one that includes all three. It includes your intellect and your emotion, but it also includes your will. A dynamic and real faith involves your will. When real decisions are made in your life. Now, when I use the word will, I'm not talking about that piece of paper that you write to uh, give people everything once you're dead, okay? It's not what I'm talking about. And also, I'm not talking about a will that says, I believe there is a God. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died for the sins of the world. That's good. That's a part of our conversion story that we need to have. But the will involves all of it pointing back to me and all of it pointing back to you. Is this God, is this Jesus worthy of me giving and surrendering all of my life to? It involves surrendering and acknowledging that I have a sin condition that separates me from God and unless I give it all to Him, I will not be credited with righteousness. We simply turn over everything and we trust in Christ to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It is not merely an external acknowledgement that you say, I believe in God, but rather it is an internal confession that I confess Him as Lord of my life and I will live a life for Him. James is saying, if the will is involved in the faith decision, then it is a genuine, it is a real faith because it demonstrates good works. But what do we do with John? I mean, John just said it's faith alone. It seems like he's saying it's faith and works. How, how do we put that together? Well, the problem is, is that sometimes what people do is they just pick one passage out and they make that their theological statement. Well, John said a lot more than just John 3.16. In John, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, John actually said this, If any one of you has material possessions and sees a brother in need, who's that sound like? James! Right? But has no pity on them. How can the love of God be in you? John says, this doesn't add up. Verse 18. Dear children, 
Let us not live with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. You see, James and John do agree. They agree that a genuine faith is not a bogus faith. But that if you have a genuine faith, there will be works that will be coming out of your life. It will manifest itself out of your life. So both John and James agree, and and Paul does as well. It is faith that saves you, but it's works that confirm. Now I want us to look at the last verse, verse 26. Because he kind of concludes it in a kind of odd way. He says this, As the body without the spirit is dead, so without deeds, so faith without deeds is dead. Hmm. What does he mean? Have any of you ever driven a high-performance car before? Or you've had a desire to? Raise your hand. High-performance car. Okay. You're a lot more honest than the first... Uh, celebration. They weren't. Well, uh, a high-performance car is basically built for one thing. Speed. How fast can we go? How much horsepower can we put in there? Now, there are foreign cars uh, like these. The uh, Ferrari, the Maserati, the Porsche. I've never been able to drive any of those before. But I don't like those probably because of that. But I like American kind of cars like the Corvette. And several years ago, there was a guy in our church who uh, had a Corvette, high-performance car, you know, that kind of car that goes zero to 60 in just, you know, a few seconds, can take, you know, curves on the dime. I mean, it could just fly. And one day, my wife Jennifer and I were uh, hanging out with him, and uh, we were talking to him, and all of a sudden he said, hey, if you guys want, take this. He gives me the keys, and he goes, put the pedal to the metal. And so, boom, it like takes off this high-performance, beautiful car. I mean, it's like going turbo speed. And I'm looking at Jennifer thinking, what are you doing? I mean, she's just not being very safe. Now could you try to get a car up to a hundred? And this just isn't very good. And I'll tell you what, when we were done with that, I told her about what I thought about. Because I am a pastor, a man of God. Now let me ask you this question. When you or I have the pedal to the metal, And this car performs. Does it at that moment become a high performance car? No. It was a high performance car before you ever got into it. Whenever you put the pedal to the metal and you go a hundred miles an hour, whenever you take sharp turns at 40 or 50 or 60 miles an hour. You can say like the angel of the Lord did, now I know you are a high-performance car. But simply your declaration, your statement that says it's a high-performance car, you're simply saying that you have confirmed and you have authenticated that it was created to be a high-performance car. James chapter 2, verse 20 says this, You foolish person, Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? You know what that word useless in the Greek means? Idle. You're just idling. What James is referring to in verse 14 is that a group of people, on the outside, they can look like a high-performance car. They look like it. They talk about being a high-performance car. But all they ever do is sit there and idle. In fact, that word useless also can mean empty or barren. That when you lift the hood up of the car, it's not there. 
And so James is saying this. If you are a true high-performance car and you open up the engine, it's going to be there. It's going to look wonderful. There will be handiwork there. And it will perform. So the question that we have to deal with with all of this is how do I make sure that my faith and my works match up? How do I grow in my faith? Well, the first thing is this. You have to test your faith. Here's our practical application. You've got to test your faith. Everybody has to test their faith. Regardless of where you're at on the spiritual spectrum, if today is your first day, you tested by walking in here. Or if you've been a Christian your whole life, you have to test it. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says this, Examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Folks, it's very, very possible that people sitting here and people who sat at the 9 o'clock can come to church, can listen to the teaching, can worship God, but the reality is that you just have a dead faith. It's an intellectual faith. You say that I believe in the one true God. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for the sins of the world. I believe it, but that's it for you. It's all intellectual. And you have never turned it inward. You have never been able to say, I want Jesus before me. I want Jesus behind me. I want Jesus above me. I want Jesus below me. Every single place I go, everything I say, everything I do, I want Jesus to be at the center of whatever that is. I need to make it my personal faith. I need to make it my will that Jesus Christ is the one who took everything for me and I owe Him, not out of a sense of obligation, but out of gratitude for what He has done for me. And some of you have been coming for a long time and it's here, it's intellectual, but it's dead. And some of you need to take a step of faith. And one of those steps is coming up next month when we have baptism. Where you finally say, I'm not just going to say I believe, but I obediently give myself to all of Christ. And I will follow Him. And so on August 25th, at Prairie Creek Reservoir, we're going to be baptizing people. And for some of you, you should mark it on your calendars right now. It'll be the biggest moment of your life that on the 11th and 18th, I'm going to be at a class. And on the 25th, I'm getting baptized. The second thing we need to do is to celebrate our faith. Now, there are some people in this room that have a genuine faith. They can celebrate. You can just rest. You don't have to get anxious. You don't have to get uptight. You can just have a blast. There's no one in the world that should have more fun and live with more joy in their life, not even when circumstances are not so great, than those who follow Christ. Because we're the only ones who know that the looming iceberg that is coming ahead, what? It's already been taken care of. I don't have to worry about it. Now, everybody else in the world should be frantic about this. So later tonight, when I get home uh, and we sit down as a family, I'm going to sit down and I'm just going to turn on the television and I'm going to watch Call of the Wild Man with my family. And I'm going to relax. I'm not going to go home tonight and think that I have to work a whole bunch on my faith, that i got to get a whole bunch of faith stuff. Because Jesus is before me. Jesus is behind me. Jesus is above me. Jesus is below me. And when I'm chilling out with my family, I'm not going to be thinking about all that. I'm just going to be thinking about live action. Right? Now why? Because I can go ahead and I can rearrange the deck chairs. Because the iceberg has already been taken care of. I don't have to worry about that. Christ did it for me, 
And as a sign of gratitude, I give my entire life and my family to him. My six-year-old daughter this week, she accepted Jesus Christ as Lord of her life. Now some of you might say, six-year-old, how can that be? Some six-year-olds can't. My younger daughter, Shiloh, she might be 16. I mean, that kid's just different, you know? But Jordan got it. And this is when I knew she got it. I sat down and I said, honey, you've been talking to us. And, and do you understand? And she said, when Jesus comes into my heart, it's 100% dead. Not 90. Not 90 dead. And I thought, how many Christians who call themselves Christians, that it's not 100%, it's 90, it's 80, it's 50, it's 40, it's 20. They don't have a dynamic faith. But because of that, I don't have to worry about it. Last thing, I must authenticate my faith. I must authenticate my faith. What's authenticate mean? It just means that you confirm your faith. So tomorrow morning, if God chooses to give me breath and allow me to get up, the whole day, I will try to stay focused on Him. In fact, sometimes I set my clock on the hour for it to buzz so that I don't go through an hour where I don't remember Him, because sometimes I do. Many times I do. I have to force myself. I want Him in my life. You know, I was thinking about it today that... uh, this week, actually, that I love being your pastor. And the reason is, is because many of you show some remarkable, remarkable leaps of faith. You put your faith into practice. One story happened on July 4th. On July 4th, we had a big cookout at Tui Pool. We're at the pavilion. Everyone's hanging out. And uh, Jeff Hansard, who oversees our evangelism uh, team, He's sitting at the pavilion and he notices that there's a guy who's walking up and down the alley. The guy's uh, clothes are tattered, kind of torn. Don't know, he might be homeless, not really sure. But he keeps walking back and forth. And finally, Jeff sees this and he takes a walk across the lawn to the alley. And he walks up to him and he says, It's about time! We've been waiting on you. Why don't you come and eat with us? And here comes this guy, clothes torn, tattered, more than likely just barely making it, and Jeff put his faith into practice, and he walked across the lawn, and he said, we've been waiting on you. That's what we need to become as a church. When people walk in here, if you're new here today, we want you to know, we've been waiting on you. Because we love you. God loves you. Jeff put his faith into practice. Here's another story. This just happened last Sunday. One of our volunteers who helps with uh, collecting the offering, she collected the offering, she went back, and she was sitting back there in the back. And... uh, she said she noticed someone that came in a little bit later and they sat in their chair and they were kind of fidgety. They're kind of moving back and forth. And uh, she said, you know, just something in my spirit made me feel like I should go up and talk to him. And so let's call this lady Sally from our church who went to this woman and uh, went up to her and said, I just wanted you to know if you need anything that I'm here for you. And the woman said, well, you wouldn't believe it, but I, I don't have any money, and I don't have a car, but I was at the YWCA, and they told me that the jar was a place that when people go to it, that they'll help people like me. And so she went on to tell her that she had these two big suitcases that she had to go to Fishers, Indiana, pretty much most of her possessions, to pick up and to come back. But she said, you know, they're really, really big and I'm going to need a truck. 
Sally never drives the truck to church. But on that particular Sunday, last Sunday, her husband said, why don't you take the truck today? And so she took the truck. And so Sally says, well, I've got a truck. And so she took this woman to Fisher's, took her to lunch, got the two bags, went to get a few more items uh, for her that she needed. And five hours later, this person who had walked through those doors thinking she was a stranger, thinking that no one wanted much to do with her, found somebody who had authentic faith and said, I can take you. Sally put her faith into practice, and it made a huge difference for this woman. And really, all I have to say about that is that that's the kind of faith that's like a Corvette doing 60 in a turn. Let's stand for closing prayer. Jesus, we don't uh, say thank you enough. I know I don't. And so today, God, we want to say thank you for taking care of our iceberg for those of us who have called you Lord. We are so grateful that we do not have to worry about our eternal destination because of what you did on the cross. And this whole week, I've just kind of been battling with with God on this, but I really feel a sense that today some of you might be at that point. And so if you're at a point where you're ready to say, you know what, I don't want a dead faith. I really do want that to be internal. That you could just repeat this prayer silently, uh, but to yourself. Jesus, I give you my life. I don't want to have a bogus faith. I want to have a genuine faith. So right now, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. All the ones that I know of. And I receive your grace. Today, I surrender all to you and receive you into my life. Lord, thank you that it is by faith that we are saved. Not because of anything we've done or not done, but because of what you did for us. That you took on our sin so that we could be set free. Lord Jesus, help us not to have a dead faith or a demonic faith, but to have a dynamic faith. And challenge us this week to test our faith, to celebrate our faith, and to authenticate it by walking across lawns and walking across gym floors and walking across factory floors and walking across office spaces to other people to show your love. Help us to be your hands, your feet, your mouth, your eyes as we love other people so that your name would be made great. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come up and if you prayed that prayer, they'd love to connect with you too. And if you're new for the first time, please uh, stop by Guest Connections and pick up a gift. And if you can help us with uh, chairs, that would be good.